Happy New Year. Welcome to the first edition of 2021 for Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group. And we're here to talk with you about, well, what happened last year and uh, talk about uh, perhaps uh, some things that you might want to consider going into the new year for your investments. And uh, I guess let's start with the uh, data dump because the numbers are pretty impressive, putting it mildly. The three major market indicators, the S&P, Dow, and uh, NASDAQ, combined for 102 record closes last year. Can you imagine it? All of them together. Which, by the way, are uh, the record closes, new highs, are uh, indicative of a bull market. But in any case, so we could, the Dow closed at 30,606. That was a new high, uh, up 196 points on uh, last Thursday. And the S&P ended at 37.56. The Dow, the Nasdaq, excuse me, at 12,888. The Russell 2000 closed at 19.76. Gold settled at 18.93 an ounce. Silver at 26.44. Crude closed at 48.52 a barrel. The 10-year ended at 0.91%. Soft white wheat was bid at 6.40 a bushel. Now, by the way, those of you subject to um, required minimum distributions this year, the numbers that uh, will determine how much you will need to take out were set based on all your retirement accounts as of the December 31st numbers. So you'll be able to determine uh, pretty accurately what that number will be once you see what those data are. Now I want to talk about this uh, Santa Claus rally. Now it's not out of date. Nope, nope, nope. The uh, It's not a December thing. Yale Hirsch uh, was a, a newsletter writer. He discovered and named it uh, back in 1972. And what it refers to is the last five trading days of the year plus the first two of the following year. So put it another way, the clock started running on Christmas Eve and doesn't end until January 5th. And because of the way weekends and holidays lined up this year, the uh, period's going to last a little longer than the other ones do. But historically, during the seven-day period, stocks do much better than all the other seven-day periods throughout the year. According to Oppenheimer, since 1928, the S&P 500 is up 78% of the time in this window. You can see why they call it the Santa Claus rally. Sam Stovall of CRFA, my buddy, he said he's waiting to see trading in the first five days of January for signs of how the market could trade the rest of the year. He noted that if the market is higher in the first five days, now this is of January, history shows that the S&P has been up 82% of the time for the full year for an average 12.5% gain. And there's that also the adage of how January goes, so goes the market. So we'll see. Now, the best sectors in 2020, the best sector in 2020, no surprise, information technology up 41.5%. And the worst one, probably also no surprise, was energy down 37.1%. So that's not good. Now, we've seen this, uh, you know, all this aid uh, back and forth uh, has pushed the dollar to its lowest level in more than two years. Now, where the uh, uh, good news is of that is that most global assets are priced in dollars. So 
This relatively weaker dollar often means that higher asset prices on everything, from stocks to commodities to emerging market issues. Uh, let's see here. Oh, yes, silver. Silver's tracking gold. This is according to Saxo Bank analyst Ole Hansen. And Ole knows what he's talking about. He's, Ole says, silver's tracking gold. It's also had the extra dimension of being supported by the rally we've seen in the industrial metals. Ole added, it's got a green transformation steam attached to it, given the expectations for increased demand for solar panels in 21. Silver, again, closed at 26.44, an ounce up 48% of the year, its best performance since 2010. Gold, uh, again, at 18.93, up 24% of the year, and that was its best year since 2010. I don't know what was going on then, but that's its best year since then. Now, here, here's the catch-22. Don't uh, uh, I've never been, <laughs> never claimed to be a, a follower or user of gold, because you could have literally owned almost anything other than gold the past 10 years and made money. Now, what's even worse is that if you own gold instead of stocks, well, you now have to add the opportunity cost to your losses as well. Don't forget that. The gold bugs tend to, you know, kind of overlook that little fact because gold is now hitting fresh multi-decade lows relative to the NASDAQ. As Mr. Mark Twain once said, a gold mine is a hole in the ground with a liar standing on top of it. So, there you are. Now, the S&P is currently trading at 22 times expected earnings. That's its most expensive level since 1999. It also trades at its richest multiple to inflation-adjusted earnings over the past decade. Now, this was popularized by economist Robert Schiller. Um, and uh, let's just say those numbers are suspect in terms of their quality uh, going forward. But... Um, one last, uh, if you will, stock note, Alaska Airlines uh, bought, uh, is, well, is buying an additional uh, two dozen 737s. That's the first order from a U.S. carrier. And Alaska said Tuesday it's going to take delivery of 68 of the 737 maxes up from the 32 it previously ordered. So put your money where your mouth is, is what it sounds like to me. Now, we've got... The economy, I'm going to hit you with a few economic notes here before we go into the more of the market stuff. There weren't too many, but just some you should probably be aware of. Goldman Sachs chief economist, a gentleman named Jan Hatzius, uh, he lifted his first quarter GDP forecast to 5% growth from 3%. For the full year, they see Goldman now sees uh, GDP growth of 5.8% versus 53 He... Uh, added that continued state and local restrictions will likely weigh on spending in the short term, leading to more pent-up demand later in the year, which is one of the reasons for their uh, growth uh, projection. Oh, and as a result of the census, there's a number of states likely to lose at least one congressional seat, at least one, uh, based on population estimates. Alabama, California, no loss there, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and West Virginia. So they'll all be down at least one seat, and uh, places like Arizona and Washington and Utah, uh, Texas, uh, will likely be picking up more. New durables, excuse me, new orders for durable goods, uh, big expectations rising in, rising in November. And those new orders are now sing signaling a sharp V-shaped recovery in those durable goods. Durable goods, things meant to last more than three years. 
Now, the final reading on the third quarter GDP came in with growth of 33.4% in the third quarter compared to the 331 expected. Now, I got a bunch of uh, information on re real estate that I think is pretty uh, good. Existing home sales did take a breather in November, but despite the small decline in November, sales in 2020 are on pace to post the highest annual level since 2006. Now, new home sales uh, was also a little light, but that said, looking at the year as a whole, uh, much more encouraging picture. Even with the recent decline, new, homes, new home sales are still up 8.7% above the January pre-virus high and are on pace to beat the best annual sales pace since 2006. Now, the number of existing single-family homes for sale, that's been tracked since 1982, and that total peaked in July 2007. But now it's fallen to its all-time low of 1.2 million. One of the challenges for the real estate market is supply and demand. There just aren't enough houses for the folks who want to buy them. Now, here's an interesting thing. Also from this census, this in 2020, 28% of the households in the U.S. were made up of just one person. And another 35% of the households were made up of just two people. 65% of those households who have just two people are a married couple. That's according to the Census Bureau. Now, uh, let's see. Oh, one more thing about uh, real estate. Uh, U.S. home prices in October jumped by the most in six years. And, and once again, supply and demand. The uh, home prices are up 7.9% uh, compared to a year ago. That's the largest annual increase since June of 2014. Phoenix, for the 17th straight month, continues to lead the league in terms of home prices rising, up 12.7%, followed by Seattle and San Diego. Right now, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about attitudes and uh, what people are suggesting may be coming in the market this year and other things like that for you to consider in your investing process. Now, right now, given where the markets are relative to where they've been, uh, there's a lot of folks running around thinking, well, I can't put any money in this dude now. It's too high. It's cheaper. If I buy here, it's bound to drop, etc., etc. Well, everybody who's ever put money in the market has had that thought at some point in time, I'm sure. But all times high aren't it's something to fear. You know, uh, they are a function of bull markets. And in fact, returns are often stronger after all-time highs because the rising prices tend to attract more buyers, which then usually leads to higher prices. You know, this tends to continue until something comes along and knocks the cycle off its course. Well, unfortunately for investors, this argument, whether or not buying all-time highs is a good idea, can't be one with facts and data. Uh, feelings are way more powerful storytellers than numbers are, and at all-time highs, uh, the desire to protect the nest egg uh, might make you feel fear where it doesn't really logically exist. Let's say, for example, that your silly brother-in-law isn't just afraid of all-time highs, but that guy is so afraid that he's going to wait for the market to crash before he starts investing. Well, we all know the guy's a bit of a, how would I say, his elevator doesn't necessarily go to the top, right? But uh, I want to talk about why waiting for that crash is really a dumb idea. 
Yeah, and that's, <laughs> it really is. You know, the thing is, it's mentally exhausting. It just wears you out. Stocks don't crash for no reason. They crash because something is harming the system. Too many people run out of time before they run out of money, so don't be spending your time waiting for the next market to crash. Now, here's something that's a definite reality that you won't actually buy when it does do that. The fact you're going to swing at that fat pitch is deeply misguided. For example, this year, that fat pitch came at you at about 130 miles an hour in March, with the S&P down by 33.8% in only five weeks. Five months later, the markets had totally erased the damage. See, remember that, I don't know that you do, but remember the night of March 11th? That's when the NBA told the players to go back to the locker room and fans to go home. I don't think they've invited him back yet. But in any case, stocks fell 10% the next day. That was your first chance to buy. Now, it's easy to look back now and say coulda, shoulda, woulda, right? But stocks were in an absolute freefall before that. There was no telling when it would end. If you're waiting for this moment, congratulations. Your, your worst fears were finally confirmed. You know, it's really interesting to me how quickly that buying opportunity just disappeared. Seven short days later, the stock market bottom. That's after um, the 18th. Now, true, you never have to buy at the exact bottom. That's silly. But we slingshot it off the lows so quickly that most had thought it was a dead cat bounce. That's a <laughs> unfortunate uh, market phrase uh, that simply means that if a uh, market's been way high, um, you know, a dead cat will bounce once, right? Sorry, but that's the logic behind it. The prudent move, the consensus move, the moves favored by pundits at that time naturally was waiting for stocks to roll over before scooping them up. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, that doesn't work. First of all, crashes don't happen that often. Since 1965, and that's been more than a couple weeks, there have been only eight drawdowns of 20% or more about once every seven years on average. So, not a lot. Buy and hold isn't the only way to invest. That's silly. But waiting for the market to crash is no way to invest. It's exhausting. You won't actually buy and it doesn't work. You know, good times don't last forever. We know that. If you're sitting on stocks that have doubled or quadrupled, you might want to be, here it is, the end, you know, it's the end of the year. You look at what you got and how we're doing and you might say, hmm, what should I do with these guys that are up so much? Have an exit plan when the markets turn because you don't want to be the last one out the door when the clock strikes midnight, do you? Now, one example I got to use because it's our favorite local utility. Now, Vista hit $53 a share in March. It was uh, around $40 uh, Thursday. And it dropped down all the way to 32 in October, or 21 points. It was a 40% drop. Now, I'm saying, what, you know, what, why didn't you sell when it was way above its uh, average um, performance over multiple years? You know, you say, well, I like to do that. Well, it's a dollar sixty-two cents. Uh, you lost twenty-one points on a hundred dollars on hundred shares. That's twenty-one hundred dollars. That it doesn't make any sense. So you know, review all your holdings. You know, you know the fact that you may have inherited them, the fact that you got a low cost basis. Uh, in a taxable account, uh, you know, sure, that could be hesitations, but don't let it be your determining factor in terms of whether or not you go forward with this stuff. 
Okay, now let me, uh, some outlook. You know, what are some folks thinking about in the market coming ahead? Now, um, Richard Bernstein and Associates, he's a longtime market analyst, uh, strategist. He said, the biggest story for 2021 might not be the market, but rather a significant shift in market leadership, sector, style, and size performance that is currently un unimaginable to many investors. He says that innovation, disruption, intangible assets, and long-time horizon investing could give way to ugly cyclicals, unknown small caps, downtrodden value, real assets, and investors' demand for immediate strong earnings growth. Well, the fundamentals are changing, as they do, and 21 is likely to be the year the rotation begins. History suggests that these rotations can be really powerful and provide considerable investment opportunities for you. Market leadership outside of true bubbles always shifts as fundamentals change. We know that. The business cycle isn't dead, and relative earnings still do drive stock performance. Now, for instance, there is an index. I don't know that you talk about it at home a lot, but it's called the Dow Jones Non-Ferrous Metals Index. That tracks 14 companies, stocks, that are primarily in the metals industry, including aluminum, copper, lead, zinc, and tin. Well, that sector, that index, is breaking out of a monster multi-year base to the upside. And the uh, index is currently 85% of its above its 200-day moving average. Copper, silver, lumber, wheat, and soybeans have all jumped up this year, more, many to more than five-year highs. This is evidence of extreme and aggressive global demand. Given that non-ferrous metals uh, are a direct function of economic and industrial activity, when you see this index re moving higher, well, it definitely is in line with the, help, the rotation we continue to see. Now, profits could grow a lot. You know, the stimulus background alone might be a solid argument from some for corporate, excuse me, stronger corporate profit growth in this year. But there's other factors to consider that suggest a substantial upturn in the profit cycle. First, earnings in 21 will have very easy comparisons to 20's uh, pandemic depressed earnings. Yeah, you could poo-poo easy comparisons, but every cycle begins with easy comparisons. So, by definition, then, it's impossible to start a cycle without, with, excuse me, with difficult comparisons. Second, forecast profit cycles have decidedly turned more optimistic. That's a critical positive because the deepest cyclical companies tend to be commodity-related, just as we talked about in that non-ferrous uh, metals index. It would be highly unusual to have an upturn in the profit cycle not powered by the most cyclical companies. After all, the cycle is determined by cyclicals, kind of one of those closed-loop deals. And the profit cycle fuels sector, size, style, rotations. Markets tend to broaden when profit cycles accelerate. An increasing number of companies begin to grow their earnings, and investors then don't have to pay a high valuation to invest for growth. So in effect, you can increasingly comparison shop for growth. Accelerating profit cycles accordingly favor the performance of value over growth, small over large, and low quality over high quality. That's from our RB, uh, Richard Bernstein. Now remember that 
a bad company will stay a bad company regardless of price. So do your homework. Bitcoin, you may have been hearing a lot about that in the markets lately. Bitcoin, well, that would take some time to explain it, but it, it's um, uh, in lieu of cash. Think of it that way, in lieu of currency. Uh, but it only has a 500 billion market cap, and that's after its recent run. It bottomed near $5,000 per in mid-March, uh, and it's more than quintupled to above $27,000. you are like, whoa, that's a bunch. Yeah, but it's only one half of 1% of the value of the stock market. It's about three-tenths of the size of the bond market. And if you really want to, if you're some sort of real math geek, well, here's one for you. If you want to do the math in the currency markets, you'll have to first figure out how many zeros there are in a quadrillion and then work it backwards from there. Let's just agree that it's no meaningful figure. My point here is that there are no global macro implications here. All of these bitcoins can go to zero tomorrow and it won't matter to anyone. Well, except for the holders, of course. It means nothing in the greater scheme of things at this point. It's an irrelevant little asset, no different than a stock or ETF. It's just more volatile and the exchange they trade on are much less trustworthy. So factor that in when somebody is, uh, how would I say, uh, preaching the value of uh, investing in Bitcoin. It would be speculative at best. So, you know, there's, we're talking about rotation in the markets and things are changing. You know, we've already gotten corrections beneath the surface. If you look at many of the largest stocks uh, in, in the indices, most of them have really done nothing over the past four months. Apple, Amazon, NVIDIA, Facebook, all of those guys, they've, they've been pretty quiet as the traders are taking profits and reinvesting them into some of these issues, uh, sectors and issues that we've been talking about. Now, if you want to kind of take the 10,000-foot view, you know, take a look at the Dow Industrials and the Dow Transportation Averages. Those are considered by a lot of people as two of the more important indices on Earth relative to the stocks. And, and until recently, they've done nothing for almost three years. And I, in my point of view, it looks as if they're finally getting going after a multi-year correction. Step out even more, look at emerging markets. 13 years of no progress. Same with U.S. financials. Still negative after the 2007 peak. What about Europe? Down over the past 20 years. Down. D-O-W-N. <laughs> down. Now, the DAX, which is D-A-X, which is made up of 30 major German companies, is making new all-time highs. More countries around the world are breaking out to new all-time highs, consistent with stocks in general doing well. Japan? What are you, nuts? Should we even go there? Well, yeah, because in Japan, the Nikkei 225, which is their equivalent of the S&P, led gains among the region's major markets as it, sure, as it moved up to 27568 That was a level not seen since August 1990. That's from Refinitiv. So, you know, this is legit. This is going on all over the world. Now, here in the U.S., all you hear about is this virus stuff. You know, there's actually other things going on in the world, believe it or not. And a number of them are quite good. And so some of them are being reflected in these markets, as you're seeing in uh, the numbers. So 
Are you looking for a correction? Well, in many cases, it certainly appears as if we already had one, so we can move on, as I've noted with these, some of these big tech names. Is that the narrative you're hearing out there, that we're closer to the beginning of a new bull market or, and not near the end of one? I don't hear that. And people think I'm kidding when I say that. Of course, <laughs> I'm one of those guys who thinks that the long term is always going to be good. So optimism is being fueled by developments that, while occurring largely out of sight, not unlike how strong roots are now growing on your plants for the spring, the, these developments are forming an increasingly durable bull case for stocks, particularly with respect to a corporate recovery this year. Now, while the Fed stimulus, vaccines, small investor enthusiasm, sure, that's all part of the picture, signs of strength in the next year's profit outlook are now perhaps a larger factor, which helps to put a floor under the stock prices. Now, behind the resilience are steadily improving forecasts for this year's earnings, which analysts have now raised in 10 consecutive weeks. You don't do that in a bad market environment. Among S&P companies issuing profit guidance for the fourth quarter, more than half increased it. That's the most in at least a decade. That's according to Bloomberg. And so investors are reacting, bidding up virtually any company whose, are, whose results are poised to hold up. See, markets, excuse me, stock prices move between reality and expectations. So here's the reality right now. If you're looking at an individual company or sector, and you say, okay, what are the expectations for that company or sector? And are they in line with what I feel is a good investment? And so you buy accordingly. If you don't think they're too good, you don't buy them. Pretty simple stuff. Bob Farrell. I don't know if that rings any bells uh, with uh, a number of you, but uh, he is something of an investing legend on Wall Street. He spent nearly 50 years at Merrill Lynch when it was Merrill Lynch and not just part of a bank. He also developed what's come to be known as uh, Farrell's Rules for Investing. And I'm not going to, he's got 10 of them. I'm not going to uh, go into each one, but I just uh, hit on uh, some of these that I think are particularly relevant now. And he said, markets tend to return to the mean over time. Now, the problem with that is you never know quite where the mean is. Whether you look at share prices or valuation metrics, you can see a, mar a market that is historically, emphasis on that word, expensive. Ultra-low interest rates tend to support higher stock valuations, so the markets aren't perhaps quite as pricey as you may think. The Fed will likely keep interest rates as low as possible for at least a few more years. And these types of valuations can be sustainable for a while longer, but they won't be once the market starts to normalize and you start seeing the Fed raising rates. And I'm not talking in quarter-point increments. Now, another of his rules is the public buys the most at the top and the least at the bottom, just the opposite of what you would think would make sense. This shouldn't be surprising, can be confirmed simply by following the financial media any day of the week. Behavioral financial theory talks about the concept of herd mentality, the idea that individual investors will follow the majority just in order to feel more comfortable with their decision, even if it's obviously the wrong ones. Now, uh, he go, his next one is, uh, markets are strong when broad, weak when narrow. Broader averages often offer a better take on the strength of the market. That's why it can pay off to follow different indices, at least those that are beyond the usual suspects, like the S&P 500, for instance. 
there's the Wilshire 5000, which, <laughs> now why it's 5000 and there's 4000 US based companies, that's not, I have no idea. But that's how it works. 4,000 based companies traded on an American exchange. And then there's the Russell indices. In addition to the Russell 2000, they have a 1000 and a 3000 weighted by market cap. can also give you exposure to the U.S. stock market. So you can use those for comparison. Now the bear markets, he says the typical bear pattern first involves a sharp sell-off. Now during a bear market, prices tend to drop 20% or more. And in most cases, the bear markets involve whole indices. This kind of market is generally caused by a weak or slowing economic activity, none of which is in evidence currently. Uh, the final stage of a bear market is the torturous grind down the levels where valuations are more reasonable and a general state of depression prevails regarding investments overall. His last thing is this. Be mindful of experts and forecasts. This isn't magic. When everyone who wants to buy has bought, there are no more buyers. At this point, the market must turn lower. Similarly, when everyone who wants to sell has sold, there's no more sellers. So when the so-called market experts and the forecasters are telling you sell, 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 or buy, 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 be sure to know that everyone is jumping on that bandwagon so much that there's nothing left to sell or buy. By the point you jump in, something else is likely to happen. Nobody said investing was easy. A lot at stake and so much to take in. Whether you're a novice trader or someone who's been watching the markets for a long time, it's certainly easy to get caught up in the swings of things and the news and the emotions and the free-for-all that happens every day in the marketplace. I want to uh, have a few final thoughts here to uh, kind of give you some uh, direction for uh, this weekend, hopefully for the rest of the year as well. Now, in terms of general market environments you know it, it's been my experience that it pays to stay cool and level-headed especially when most aren't this is something you need to work on you gotta train yourself to do but this, that's what it takes uh, you know unprecedented events with big negative consequences will trigger fear and panic in most people but such crises aren't the only risk what they can do is lead you to take wrong actions at the worst possible moments, moments which of course compounds the injury. In mid-February, after we had an exceptionally strong 2019 uh, that looked pretty likely to continue, well, stocks got ambushed and uh, the pandemic led to the blanket economic government-driven lockdowns attempting to contain it, and economic activity stopped. Well. To correctly have taken defensive action, you would have had to make not one, but two correct calls. First of all, realize that weakness was a bear market before panic selling set in and bottoming on March 23rd. The other is to buy back in while stocks were still materially lower than when you sold, which likely meant that lock while lockdowns persisted, virus cases were rising swiftly, etc., Selling in fear of further declines? Well, that's a backward-looking choice that fails to acknowledge uh, last year's critical lesson that stocks look forward, to some degree ranging from a few months to a couple years. Looking backwards from a loss could easily cause you to risk moving the typically swift bear market recovery. Andrew Simmet, Slimmon, excuse me, 
managing director, portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Manager and Management said, a lot of people said the market is disconnected to reality, but stocks are pricing in what's going to happen in six months to a year. Well said, Andrew. In the pandemic, investors who began betting on a stock recovery in the spring weren't assuming the economy was about to come roaring back. No, they were assuming things would be better some months down the road than they were at the time, and they've been right. So with both the pandemic and the financial crisis, those who sold on bad news and waited for the economy to recover to get back uh, would have missed out on the bulk of stocks upside. There is no direct connection between the economy and the markets. Markets are forward-looking. GDP uh, reports and so on are backward-looking. Okay, So the returns, here, here, here we go. I'm sorry, I uh, jumped a paragraph here. Um, you know, as, as harrowing as sell-offs may be, history shows that the vast majority of investors are better off not trying to hop in and out of the market. Here's a real-world example. The returns of a hypothetical investor who put $10,000 into an S&P index fund in 1980. 1980, that's been a couple weeks now and missed over these 40 years, missed just five best days, this was through the end of August of last year, would be 38% percentage points lower than someone who stayed throughout the whole period. Now, this is according to Fidelity. For instance, in, in terms of dollars, it, it's like this. If you had put 10000 in there in 1980 and stayed the stayed course, that turned to $697,000 plus. If you miss just the five days over 40 years, $432,000. <laughs> if you miss the 10 best days over 40 years, instead of $697, you got $313. Now, none of it is terrible. I mean, it's a lot more than 100 But come on, 10 days, 5 days, you know, that's... That goes back to uh, when things get silly, turn off the TV, sit on the couch, eat some bonbons. There's nothing, that's the best way to stay out of trouble. You know, bad stuff happens, yeah, necessitating a healthy but not oversized emergency fund, you know, when things are concerning to you. This year, more than most, should highlight why maintaining an emergency fund is a really good idea. It protects you against unexpected expenses, market turmoil, or even loss of income. Now, hopefully, you never have to tap the emergency funds, but when you need them, oh boy, are we glad they're there. Ready access to some cash can prevent a really bad situation from becoming even worse. If you lost your job or a sudden expenditure comes out of the blue, having the reserves to tide you over can be a real lifesaver. But don't go overboard. You know, this could raise the risk of you not meeting your long-term financial goals. Many have come away, I think, thinking that last year meant that you should keep a bigger emergency fund than you would normally, just in case, right? Well, no. From an investment perspective, an emergency fund's purpose is simply to prevent you from selling during downstretches to fund unanticipated expenses. Now, that having been said, I'm afraid too many have overlearned this lesson. 
they carry way too much cash. I know a lot of people are doing that, you know, and especially given their goals and needs, and they're doing it out of fear. Fear is a tough thing. And having a bigger emergency fund than really what you need, and by the way, that generally is around six months of regular cash flow needs. You know, look at all your annual expenses, divide them by 12, and divide them by two, and you got your number. So it, it, what, what it would mean then is that more of your savings aren't working toward your long-term objectives, especially when you've got a near-zero-rate era. You know, socking away large amounts of cash generally reduces your investment's overall returns and, again, potentially jeopardizes your financial future. A bigger buffer than warranted doesn't automatically make you safer or better off. It could be just the opposite. Now, for example, you know, T-bonds, they're the no-risk deal, right? Well, if you had, if you had a million dollars and you, and you wanted to, you know, earn income off that, in 19, 19, well, let's do 1980 because we use that for the other example. In 1980, if you had a million dollars, you could get $108,000 just in interest from that one issue. Great. Today, that million dollars will generate $9,000. About $100,000 less in interest income. Kind of a challenge to make the ends meet when you've had that kind of a drop. So, again... Uh, emergency funds are, you know, you don't worry about what's the rate of return, just that they're there and you've got them available, but just for emergencies. Now, something else to uh, think about as a result of this year, I think. Don't re wait to plan your legacy. You know, too many untimely deaths this year. Establish a will. Review your beneficiaries. Oh, my goodness. Please do that. Make sure the beneficiaries are who you want on your insurance, your retirement plans, because those are contractual and have nothing to do with what you said in your will. So please check those to make sure you've got them how you want them. And think about your long-term objectives and how have they changed? What you need or want your money to accomplish? Uh, the overall purpose of your nest egg it may be different than what you thought before, but not, so review it. So as we're looking forward into this year, the best economic tailwind for the economy comes not from the politicians, obviously, but from the near-miraculous scientific achievements that now have vaccines being distributed all around the world. It takes getting back to normal, getting back to work, to be able to fully recover from the wounds of last year. The stimulus stuff has and will continue only to be a band-aid until the real healing takes place. You know, a Federal Reserve calculation of future inflation expectations, they say that well, it's about 2% in the five-year period starting five years from now. So 20 to 26, 20 to 2030. Now, it's more than just deficits and debt. Every penny of government spending is taxed or borrowed from the private sector. The private sector. And these transfers of wealth and income come from current and future tax barriers, and they distort the economy in massive ways. Now, market leadership outside of true bubbles always shifts as fundamentals change. The business cycle is Its relative earnings still do drive stock performance. This time is different. It's historically been the kiss of death for investors because the statement assumes the traditional business cycle has been repealed. Every cycle has its unique features, but the business cycle remains. 
So I hope you have a great year. Go Zags. <laughs> Gotta say it. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayo with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group. And we'll be back next week with more stock type news. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small-company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims-paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.